Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our third in the series of theme talks this week. Excuse me. <coughs> the dry throat problem. I always that's why I have so much water. But welcome. I'm Danny Crosby. I serve the congregations of Ermston and Altrincham in the Manchester district, and you're most welcome here this morning. Can we distill ourselves for a few moments while we light our chalice flame, symbol of our free religious faith? I'd like to invite my colleague forward, who shares the same name as me, to double out this morning. I'd like to invite Danny forward to light our chalice this morning, just to embarrass him, really. to this sacred space here love dwells you are most welcome may we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and be inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of life may we know once again that we are not isolated beings but connected in mystery and miracle connected to the universe to this sacred space, to one another, and to God. Let us begin this short period of worship in the spirit of love. And let's begin by singing the first hymn for this morning, hymn number 24, Come and Sing a Song with Me. Hymn number 24.
were fully awake now has brought us back to life again. I invite you now to join together in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Oh great mystery, help us to experience you here in our lives. Help us to see you as you blow through the branches of the great trees. Help us to feel you as you gust through our fields and our streets. And help us to taste you on the breath of those we hold most dear. Be with us when we are afraid to delve within. When we cannot face ourselves in the glass. When we are paralysed by our guilt and our shame. Sustain us as we open the windows to our hearts. And stand before the world exposed. But ready. God of love, open our eyes. Help us to discover that we are not who we thought that we were. That we need not fear our natures. What lies at the centre of our being and of all creation is love. Love unconditional. Love everlasting. Love eternal. Love time long long ago in Japan a woman prayed that God would show her the difference between heaven and hell she wanted to know whether there were fires in hell or whether people in heaven sat on clouds playing harps all day long she didn't really fancy either place they both sat one sounded boring and one sounded a bit unpleasant I'm not quite sure which was the boring depends on your taste really doesn't it but she prayed really, really hard. She was a better prayer than I, really. And God decided to answer her prayer. Sometimes he does, you know. And he sent an angel to give her a guided tour of both places. Angels are good like that, you know. They are. They're quite good, good guides, if you listen to them. Well, first of all, he took her to hell. And actually, it wasn't hot at all. In fact, it looked quite pleasant. There were long tables laden with wonderful food. A bit like the hair, really, I suppose. <laughs> wonderful meats and vegetables, fruit, delicious pies, exotic dishes of all kinds.
could not feed themselves. They were growing with hunger, frustration, anger. Anyway, after a while, one said, I've seen enough of this. No more. Show me heaven. Show me heaven. May I see heaven now? Well, the angel, again later, led her. Sorry, not later. I'm very good at this, am I? Not that kind of angel. They didn't have far to go. They took her to the next room. And the room was identical to hell in almost every single detail. The people again were sat facing one another with three feet long chopsticks in their arms. But these people were quite well developed. They had big smiles on their faces. They were laughing. They were telling jokes. Not quite as bad as Bill's jokes, but they were telling each other jokes. They were happy. They were rose cheeks. But there was one thing that was different. Again, they could not feed themselves. But in heaven, they fed one another. And that's the difference between heaven and hell. I've got another tiny little story, but this is more of an anecdote. And thank you, thank you, Andy and Carl, for last night, because you've actually helped me this morning. It was lovely was your epilogue, but you made reference. We're going to sing hymn number two, actually, which was a hymn which I stumbled across, one of Bill's meaningful coincidences, synchronicity, if you like. I was looking for a hymn. I was looking for Will Build the Land, actually, which is a couple of pages back. I, I, picked, I was doing hymn number 200, What Does the Lord Require? Sorry, I should have said that. I have to, I'll have to go back to college. I need to learn how to do this job better. Despite my best efforts. Well, you, you did great, though. You're, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. It's, it's Michael's fault, not yours. <laughs> I was spending all that time in Macclesfield that made me into a clown. No, but seriously, I was looking for a hymn. I was, I was doing one of the a service around Karen Armstrong's 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. And for one of the readings, I picked these words from Micah that you read last night. Thank you. So it fits in even more beautifully. I, I didn't script that, but, and I'm not the great script writer. That, someone else, isn't it? Or something else. And, um, but I opened the book, came across hymn number 200 by accident, and I was about to turn the page over when I noticed the words, which were the exact same words that I'd used in that reading. So I thought, instead of ending the service with hymn number 198, I'd end it with this one. It seemed a little bit more appropriate. When I listened to the tune, it had a bit of oomph to it, so I thought that's a good hymn to end with. So that's the reason I picked it today. Or maybe Andy and Carl picked it, actually, without even knowing it. So let's sing hymn number 200, What Does the Lord Require? Hymn number 200. The real words are Thank you. There we are. We have another angel at the back of the room. Thank you. Well, there you go. Here we go. Hymn them this thing anyway.
nothing from the else from this morning. I've introduced you to a grave. <laughs> to be serious for a moment. Every Sunday morning before beginning worship at Dunham Road, I like to look up at the ceiling above me. But have you been to Dunham Road? Yes, yes. One or two. It's a beautiful place. I love it. Well, I've grown to love it. There's so much, actually, you can feast your eyes upon without it being overbearing, really. Well, before beginning worship, I like to look up and offer a prayer. A quiet prayer. No one notices. Only I know. A prayer to remind me of why I'm there. A prayer to remind me of what I believe worship is for. A prayer to remind me of what I believe spiritual community is all about. A prayer to remind me of what I believe religion truly is. And as I look up, I feel like I'm standing beneath the hull of a great ship. It's okay, it's one that's turned upside down. It's a bit like the Poseidon adventure, perhaps. But I'm cool, I quite like that. I like that even more. I'm I'm one of those people who's always looking for the uncommon sense in life, actually as opposed to common sense that I'm told I I should be seeking. I think there's too much common sense, not enough uncommon sense. Common sense is overrated, but as uncommon sense is so rarely absorbed, rarely even heard. So I hope in some sense, if it makes any sense, this little talk will reveal some uncommon sense to you. Why, you may ask? Well, I reckon... It's only through uncommon sense that the great mystery truly reveals itself. When I look up at the ceiling, I feel like I'm dangling down towards the bottom of that great ship. And when I look up, it's a bit dizzying actually the moment I look up. Back at the people, sorry. I feel like we're in this ship together. We are sailing in a ship together. We don't sail that ship alone. We are fellows in the same ship. We are journeying in fellowship, if you prefer. Not an art boat, no. More a kind of cruise ship. A love boat, even, actually. Kind of like that idea, a love boat. It's a fellowship of love, a fellowship of the Spirit, even. Each week we journey together. Okay, I may be steering the ship, but I'm certainly not the navigator. And after our weekly adventure on our little love boat, we go back into the world. We go our separate ways and hopefully carry a little bit of that spirit into our daily lives. Even if it's just a morsel, it's enough, you know. It can change the world. One little tiny drop of love can change the world. And hopefully we might just share a little bit of that uncommon sense in our own little worlds. Just a tiny drop. We go our separate ways. So for the next half hour or so, I'm going to attempt to steer you through a journey that will explore the concepts of this fellowship of love that I'm... I've got a tiny taste, a tiny taste, a drop perhaps. And hopefully when you leave here, you might just carry a drop of that yourselves into your own little world. Just one little drop is enough. Earlier I shared with you the story of heaven and hell. I first came across it in one of Bill's books. Thanks for that, Bill. It's a great tale, don't you reckon? Maybe it's not not usually told the way I told it, but it wasn't even meant to be told that way, but, you know, these things have a life of their own. And I've come across several other versions of the story, you know, the traditions. There's a great version in the Jewish tradition where the chopsticks are replaced by large spoons. It's the same story. The stories are all the same the world over, really, aren't they? In the story, heaven and hell appear almost exactly the same, well, exactly the same, and yet they are experienced so, so differently. In hell, all go hungry, and everyone tries to feed themselves. They are purely self-reliant. And yet in heaven, they attempt to feed one another, and are therefore fed in abundance. To me, this is as much about the relationship as the food going into one another's mouths. I believe that we all possess an innate 
need to serve one another. And if we do not do this, a part of our humanity, humanity even, withers away, it dies off. We starve. By not serving one another, we starve our souls. That's hell. I think one of the greatest delusions of the modern era is the myth of self-reliance. It's a myth, I believe. It's not true. This idea that as individuals, we all have exactly what we need and that we do not need one another. We don't need more than just what we are ourselves. Jeffrey Lockwood, in his meditation, to ask is to give, claims that. One of the great blessings of travel is to be put in a position of asking help from others. To be genuinely needful of strangers. Our illusion of self-reliance evaporates as the unexpected and and unfamiliar merge into vulnerability. We offer a gift of authentic need, the opportunity for deep trust. We express to another human being, another person, the most humanising cross-cultural phrase, please Help me. Please help me. In our society, self-sufficiency is heralded as a virtue. And chronic dependence on others can be degrading. But never being asked to help another person is isolating, even dehumanising. In a culture that exalts autonomy, asking for help may be the greatest gift we offer. So much of life has become a calculation of costs and benefits. To ask assistance is to create the opportunity for unconditional giving in a raw, spiritual defiance of economic rationality. We become mutually indebted without an expectation of repayment. Each person in the relationship becomes a giver. Each person becomes a receiver. Each one becomes more human. Each one has something to be thankful for. (coughs) There are several slightly different accounts in the Gospels of Jesus feeding crowds of people. Now there's a real danger losing the meaning behind these tales by engaging in windy arguments about their factual accuracy to get hung up on a debate as to whether Jesus did or not or could feed these thousands of people is to actually miss the whole point of the stories is it really what these stories are about I don't think it is actually to get hung up is to miss the whole point mythological tales are not about fact They're about revealing deeper, universal truths that we all share. It's not about how many people were fed by several fish, or how many fish it was, or how many thousands of people. That's not what the story's about. And there's a line in an account in Mark's Gospel, where we hear Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, if it helps you, if you want to know the detail and read the actual story. But it's a line that really hits me hard at times. The line is... They ate and they were filled. They ate and they were filled. In this account, Jesus spent set three days with the people that he feeds. He not invited them to join him, therefore he was not obliged to feed them. And the crowd were not expecting to be fed from the meager amount on offer. But what happens? Well, Jesus recognises the crowd's hunger and the fact they have travelled a great distance to be with him. He expresses compassion for all of them. He asks the crowd to sit down and to share a meal with him. He then instructs the disciples to serve the people personally, each one. The crowd eat and they are filled. Not because their bodies are filled, but because their hunger is met in the most important way possible. What occurs is a true human encounter between the disciples and the crowd. The people are served face to face and therefore truly loved and cared for. 
They've not only been physically fed, they have been personally served, and therefore their humanity has been recognised. Each individual's hunger matters. From you I receive, to you I give, together we share, and from this thirst and hunger, even in our seemingly materially abundant lives. We cannot feed this hunger in isolation, in self-reliance. It is only fed in that relationship that occurs as we feed one another. This is fellowship to me. Fellowship is what occurs in the relationship between the two as we meet in the middle, if you like. In this relationship, in this space, we encounter the love that is God, I believe, in that space, in the meeting. We all hunger and purpose. We all hunger and search for purpose and meaning. As Viktor Frankl pointed out, we are driven by a will to find a meaning and purpose. Well, I'd go further, actually, and suggest that we are also driven to find companionship in our increasingly isolated and isolating culture. We need to serve one another or our souls will starve. And I have discovered, and I keep on discovering, that our deepest pangs are not satisfied by the food that is laid on our table, but in the relationship that occurs as we feed one another and as we drink from one another's cup. This is fellowship. And in that meeting, we know the love that is God. I believe. William Wordsworth once wrote, There are in our existence spots of time that with distinct preeminence retain a renovating virtue whence depressed by false opinion and contentious thought or aught or heavy or more deadly weight in trivial occupations and the round of ordinary intercourse our minds are nourished and invisibly repaired. A virtue by which pleasure is enhanced that penetrates, enables us to mount when high, more high, and lifts us up when fallen. And lifts us up when fallen. Spots of time are moments in our lives that have the potential to change us forever. Moments when life not only feeds, but truly nourishes us on a deep, deep, deep level. Deeper than the marrow of our bones. Moments when the common becomes uncommon. Moments when the veils we create ourselves seem to slip away. Moments when we seemingly see beyond the ordinary. Moments when we experience reality on a deeper level. When we're really touched by something more. Grace. These spots of time are sacred moments that are made holy by their mysterious ability to nourish us and perhaps even repair us in body, mind, heart, in soul, the core of our being core of all being. These moments are so special though because they're so rare. <laughs> or seemingly, actually, maybe you just don't notice them. They are a kind of grace. They seemingly come to us from a place somewhere beyond ourselves. So self-reliance can't bring them around. It comes from beyond ourselves. 
Now, Karen Armstrong believes that we can create these spots of time in, in one another's lives. That small acts of kindness, when we serve, feed, nourish one another, can be spots of time that have the potential to change people's lives forever. Can you recall spots of time in your own lives? Well, I'm going to ask you to do so. I'm going to ask you to just talk to your neighbour, just for a few minutes, about moments, spots of time, when there's something remarkable, perhaps, something that's changed you forever. Just talk to the person next to you, just for a few minutes. I sit down and have a rest. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not going to ask you to share with them, everybody because we'll be here all week. But what I do suggest you do is continue having those conversations with one another for the rest of the week. Perhaps. Spots of time. I have served the good folk of Altrincham and Ermston for two years now. I feel we've got to know one another fairly well during this brief period of time. From the outset I made it a priority of mine to spend time talking but above all else listening to them all. Listening. Really listening. During the worship we have shared I have encouraged openness by allowing them to get to know me. Risky business that isn't it? Some people suggest you should never do that. Well I told you I only listen to uncommon sense. That's common sense. I let them get to know all my little cracks. I am a crackpot I, I have no doubt about that Leading worship for me is about communicating the language of the heart. An address should never be a lecture. I hope to God this is not turning out to be a lecture. If it is, tell me off I need it And I know it must have been a bit of a challenge for some folk at first but it was a deliberate decision on my part in an attempt to give them permission to be open with me. I had to lead by example know me, faults and all, warts and all and beauty spots too by revealing your warts you always reveal your beauty spots we hide them more actually I think we frighten, we're more frightened of those I think <laughs> visiting people in their homes sitting, sharing food they, ins they always insist on feeding me I don't know why that <laughs> speaking and listening deeply I've heard some of the most wonderful tales pain, of suffering, of love, of joy, of deep and profound spiritual experiences. There's some deeply religious people, you know, in our denomination. They keep it quiet. <laughs> Somehow they're frightened to let that one out of the bag. For being, well, for being ridiculed, of not being rational, I think, yeah. Well, I don't know, I think the most irrational thing I ever did was to deny reality. I think that's irrational, but that's just, that's just my opinion. What do I know? They have welcomed me into, my, into their community, into their homes, as I have welcomed them into my heart, I hope, or try to anyway. We have enjoyed fellowship, deep, true fellowship in that deepening relationship, I hope. Well, that's my attempt. They've loosened up anyway, definitely. No else have done that. And listen with the ear of your heart one of my little mantras. If you've spent some time with me, you'll have heard me repeat this phrase over and over again. And it comes from the rule of St. Benedict, a set of ancient principles for monastic orders, actually. The foundation of the rule is listening. Deep, attentive listening. That's really hard to do, you know. Listen carefully, my child, to the instruction. And attend to them the ear of your heart. This to me is the key component of fellowship. Listening to one another with the ear of our hearts. And of course to speak the language of the heart, which is just as hard. It really is, isn't it? If we do, but if we do, we may just begin to hear that uncommon sense spoken by the great mystery in all life but we have to listen we have to speak it too 
approached Nazaruddin and asked him, How does one become wise? To which Nazaruddin replied, Listen attentively to wise people when they speak. And when someone is listening to you, listen attentively to what you are saying. <laughs> Nazruddin, the wise fool, the holy fool, he spoke a lot of uncommon sense, didn't he? There's a lot in these stories. Ernest Hemingway once said, when people talk, listen completely. Most people never listen. Listening is about invitation. It's about inviting the other into our lives. It is about making place for the other. But that's not easy to do when engaging in conversation, is it? <laughs> not easy at all. How many of us can say that we really listen to one another? When we begin to converse, do we take time to truly listen to what the other is saying, or what we're saying even on that matter? Do we really listen to what's coming out of our mouths? Or do we just want to make our point? Are we really making space for the other in conversation with one another? That space for God? The mystery. In Forgotten Art of Deep Listening, Kaling Dal asks us to think of the difference it would make if each of us felt really listened to when we spoke. Imagine the time it would save to be heard the first time around, instead of having to repeat ourselves over and over again. Envision a conversation in which each person is listened to with respect, even, the, even those whose views are different from us. This is all possible in conversations of the heart. When we practice the sacred art of listening, it takes intention and commitment. We need to slow down to expand our awareness of the possibility of deep listening. The simple act of listening to each other can transform all of our relationships. Indeed, it can transform the world one drop at a time. As we practice being the change that we see in the world, by listening we can begin to transform the world. By listening we can practice being the change we wish to see, or maybe hear, in the world. That's all it takes. This, this story will surprise you. This will really shock you. If you've ever been to the town. About nine years ago, I met a man in Oldham. Of all places, Oldham. <laughs> if you've ever been, it will shock you. Who changed my life. Actually, he did more than change my life. He saved my life. And that is not an understatement. He did. I mean that. He taught me many things, one of which was how to listen. He taught me many other things, but one of them was that. When he first started talking, I really didn't want to listen to him. This began with practicing noticing when I wasn't listening, which was most of the time, when others were speaking, when I couldn't hear what they were saying. He taught me to observe my mind when it wandered off, or to notice when listening how much of my time was spent working out what brilliant cutting remark I wanted to make, and I still do that, so I'm not there yet, but anyway. In, a in an attempt to refute what they were saying, most of the first conversations I had with him were all littered with that kind of stuff. He told me that when we are listening to another, we are extending ourselves to that person. We are giving them a gift, actually. A gift that we can both share making space for the other we create a sacred space we make space for God we get a taste of heaven a taste one of the pies that you quite like Jeff he taught me that when we listen to another we truly give of ourselves whereas when we only appear to be listening we are in fact judging or comparing ourselves to them 
where in actual fact, and when we do that, we are judging ourselves. He told me that if we learn to listen to others without judgment, we can begin to accept them for who they truly are. Who they truly are, not who we think they are, which is often wrong. I'm terrible at first impressions. I never, I've got to learn never to do that, because often they come from a place of fear, I find. By doing so, we are learning to love them. By doing so, we are giving we are dignifying them actually by doing, and by doing so we are dignifying ourselves that's often very hard by doing so we create a, spa- a sacred space in that relationship in that space we can know God we can taste heaven just taste it one drop maybe one drop is enough But of course, not all the great sages come from old. I know that's hard to believe. After that story, that's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's true, too. That's Cheshire. That's Cheshire. Oldham's not in Cheshire. Don't ever confuse Oldham with Cheshire. You've obviously never been. Bob Pounder's from Oldham, if that helps. Cameron Armstrong was highlighted. Some of the great sages also spoke great troops to us from ancient times but no different to this ordinary man from old and Cameron Armstrong has highlighted that human dialogue has tended to be aggressive a tradition we inherited from the ancient Greeks if we look at our world today we tend to debate competitively whether public figures or in the playground the pub, Facebook read the conversations on there do we listen or are we just telling each other how wrong we are, I do it I'm no angel, I'm no saint. Often when we engage in conversation, are we really trying to trip one another up? Are we really trying to prove one another wrong? Now since ancient times, the sages have tried to offer solutions to this aggressive way of communicating, actually. They don't seem to have won out, do they? No. As she highlighted... The Socratic dialogue was a spiritual exercise designed to produce a profound psychological change in the participants. And because its purpose was that everybody should understand the depth of his ignorance, not his knowledge, his ignorance, there was no way that anybody could win. The key, as Plato highlighted, is to make place for the other in his mind and to listen intently and sympathetically to the ideas of his partners in dialogue now can you imagine that happening on question Prime Minister's question time can you imagine them doing that across the floor or even on things like Facebook or down the pub or in the playground do we do that but we can start change the world one drop at a time other great sages such as the Buddha and Confucius conducted discussions in a similar manner. Confucius always developed his ideas in conversation. He did this because he felt that to achieve maturity required this kind of friendly interaction. The Buddhist communities were just the same in those ancient times. Listening is about making space for the other. It is an invitation an invitation to create true spiritual intimacy. Listening is a way to release ourselves, actually, from the treadmill of our own egocentric little worlds. Like hamsters stuck on that wheel. I've been for most of my life. Can be till day. It releases us from hell. It gives us a taste of heaven. A drop of God. Listening is a loving practice, and as such, it requires discipline, actually. It requires spirit, it requires devotion. It begins by being aware, by being mindful of when we do not listen, and recommitting to listening once again. It is one step to living more empathically, empathically even, more compassionately with one another. But it's not an overnight job. It's a lifetime's project. And as Karen herself says... The attempt to become a compassionate human being is a lifelong project. It is not achieved in an hour, a day, or even 12 steps above. You know. It's a struggle, a real struggle, that will last until our dying day. 
it's worth it. It gives you a taste of heaven. You can know God. A drop. It begins with listening. By attempting to be the change that we want to be. We can turn away from judgment towards empathy and understanding. We can truly invite others into our lives. We are the ones that really get it. Walls come down, tumbling down. We do not journey alone. We sail the ship of life together. I hope this little drop of a journey we have shared this morning has opened you up to the concept of fellowship, of the fellowship of the Spirit. I hope that in some way it has shown how vital it is that we invite the other into our lives. How we need one another actually. How vital it is that we truly give of ourselves to others and let others truly give of themselves to us. That can be even harder. It's hard for me. Let somebody in. Keep joking. <laughs> they might hurt you. <laughs> they might even love you. God, that's frightening, isn't it? So let's feed one another from one another's hearts in our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Thoughts, words, deeds. From here. And it all begins by listening with the ear of our hearts. Not here. And by doing so we might just to begin to understand that uncommon sense that is spoken through all of life listen to it in the wind around here but it's so rarely heard Amen I've decided we're going to sing one more hymn <laughs> listen to one another while singing it listen to Sheila, just follow Sheila hymn number 198 which was to be the original hymn Way back when I did that first Kevin Armstrong service, but I did the other one. 198, we'll build a land. Hymn number 198. Yeah.
simply regard each other truly listen to each other speak what each of you must speak be ready in any moment to disarm your heart and always live as if a realm of love had begun and may the love of God be with us in all that we feel all that we think